All right, so I'm Rachel Woody. I'm here on July 30th, and we are at Weisinger Winery, and I'm here with Eric Weisinger. Yes, and it's actually called Weisinger Family Wineries. That's the that's the full the name. Full name. Weisinger okay. Family Winery. Yeah. Okay, thank yeah, you. And that's actually changed slightly, but that's part of the the story, I guess. All right. Well, let's start with how the Weisinger Family Winery even started. I sure. believe it was back in 1988? 1988 was when we had the first crush, so the first time that we crushed grapes here. But um, this brand, this, our story actually starts back in 1978. So it's 1978 that John, mm -hmm. who's my uh, father, got the crazy idea to plant Gewürztraminer meter here in Ashland. Um, we planted about an acre and a half of it. Okay. The grapevines came from a guy named Frank Wisnowski, who's the late owner and uh, founder of uh, Valley View out in the Applegate. They were actually the very first winery in our area. So my father in about 1976 came to the Ashland area. He became friends with Frank and Frank convinced him, my dad, to plant grapes. And so Frank sold him the cuttings. Mm -hmm. And one June, it was June, I think, of 1978, my sisters and I were here. Um, I was about 10. And uh, he told us what our summer project was going to be that year, and that was putting in a vineyard. It okay. was the first vineyard planted in the Ashland area. And then for about 10 years after that, we grew grapes, and we made some home wine usually not very good, um, and he was still working as a Presbyterian minister at the oh, time. So okay. he did that for about 25 years. Wow. Retired from that in about 1986, and then um, built the winery in 88. And we sort of, I mean, I grew up with the idea that at some point in time we would have a winery. Didn't have any idea that it would actually turn into what it has. Um, after I graduated high school in 87 and went to Germany for a year and went to school there and while I was over there my father flew over um, and he was flying over. He didn't re he wasn't completely clear on the reason he was coming over. I just thought he was coming over to, to hang out and see Europe and uh, but the reason was actually he wanted to visit wineries in southern Germany, taste wines, and then go down to Italy and visit a couple of equipment companies. So companies that produce presses and distemmers, pumps, because he was starting to think this, you know, we're going to actually go forward on this. And so um, when he came over, we spent about a month traveling around, visiting wineries, getting ideas for what our winery could look like mm -hmm. visiting equipment companies and um, he came over in April he went back the first of May um, I came home from Germany about July of 88 and when I came home um, there was a big hole up in what used to be our hayfield so this okay. this fact where we're sitting uh, 25 26 years ago used to, used to be just a hayfield and we had uh -huh. sheep looked a whole lot different then. <laughs> so I came home, uh, a friend of mine picked me up at the airport and drove out here and there was this massive piles of earth and my dad was up here. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we 
walked up and there was this hole and I said, my gosh, what's, you know, what's this? He said, that's the wine cellar. And so he had, he had started construction on it without really telling me. It was kind of a surprise. <laughs> um, but over the next three, four months, we built this. We built all this, which is here. And then we had our first crush that fall of 88. So that was when we did our first wines. And that first year we produced um, Chardonnay, Gewürztraminer, Cabernet Sauvignon, mm -hmm. a rosé out of Cab, and then a, a blend. Yeah, okay. that's what we did. I think we did about a thousand cases. Wow. Are those wines that you still do today, or how has that evolved? You know, the wine program here has changed a lot, but then again, so is the market and still it's Oregon. So I'd say that we've, in a sense, evolved with everything else that's happened. We still produce Gewurz. Mm -hmm. uh, we still produce it from those older vines. So those vines are now 35 years old, which is crazy to think about. Right. But So we still do Gewurz out of those. Uh, we still produce Cab just because it's one of those varieties in our area that does really well. Um, Chardonnay, we, I think the last time we did Chardonnay was maybe 2001 or so. Um, we focus more these days on the Rhones, so doing Syrah, Grenache, Viognier. Um, we also do quite a bit of Tempranillo. Mm -hmm. um, at one point in time we had four acres of good first planted here okay. and about the mid 2000 like 2005 2004 we began to see some of the research that was coming out on Tempranillo and how it was doing very well in this part of Oregon um, there also seemed to be interest in the market for it so we pulled up half of our Gewurz implanted Tempranillo in 2006. So here on the property okay. today, where we used to just have Gewurz, we have Gewurzaminer, Tempranillo, and a very, very small um, amount of Pinot Noir, mm. just because it's Oregon and I like Pinot Noir, so. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So how did you get into the industry? Was it right after you got back from Germany or? Not exactly. I mean, we, like I said, I grew up with the idea of it and wine was always something that I was interested in. Uh, when I was 16, uh, my, my best friend and I took a bunch of pears and we pressed them and got all this pear juice, about 10 gallons and a couple of five gallon carb boys. Um, and my father said, well, if you guys want to make champagne out of it, or sparkling pear wine out of it, right. that's okay. And so my friend and I thought, fantastic, let's give this a go. How hard can it be? So we got some yeast, some Fleischmann's bread yeast, mm -hmm. and uh, we had some instructions and we went about the process uh, of making it. And we made um, about 36 bottles. Um, we didn't have a fancy sparkling wine cork and cage. We just right. bottle capped them with Pepsi bottle caps. Okay. And um, it was some of the worst wine I've ever made, but we drank it nonetheless. Um, so that was my first foray into the production of alcohol. And there was just something about it which I thought was so interesting, how you could take something like juice and through this process that, that you're, you know, you're, 
you aren't the one doing it in the sense. I mean, it's all the, the consumption of sugar and metabolizing alcohol. That's, that's, that's done by this completely different organism, but you're sort of shepherding the process. Mm -hmm. And there was something uh, about that which I thought was interesting. And um, when I graduated high school, I traveled around a while, and I went to university, um, went back to Europe, finished up school over there, um, had been working here at the winery on and off through through school and things like that and decided I would come back for a year before I went off to graduate school okay. so this was uh, 1995 and um, one year turned into two years turned into three years the idea of graduate school just got further and further and further away ended up going down to UC Davis and uh, took a took a whole bunch of classes down there. Spent a little time down there, and uh, um, the next thing I knew, I was you know, ten years had had passed. So I took over the wine making here in uh, in '97. Okay. Um, it's probably the it's the most interesting thing I can think of doing, making wine. Right, so I imagine you'll stay here with the family winery for years to come then? Well, you know, everything changes. You know, there are, there are very few absolutes mm -hmm. with anything, but um, no, I enjoy what I, what I do here. And my heart's here, uh, my history's here. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I would, I, would, I would hope that that's what would occur. Since you've been able to travel to Europe and also Australia, and mm -hmm. was it New Zealand mm -hmm. as well? Yeah. What you see going on in the Oregon wine industry, and specifically Rogue Valley, how does that compare, or does it compare, to what you're seeing elsewhere in the world? Well, I think it, it, it depends on which respect you mm. look at it. Um, on one hand, um, you know, the industry in Southern Oregon has been evolving. It's been changing, particularly the last 25 years. Mm. Um, in a sense, what we see is an evolution of the industry here, as well as the industry in Oregon. Mm -hmm. But talking specifically of this region, um, what I've seen in, the, in where I've traveled, where I've worked, is that it seems that every one region, as it develops, as it evolves, mm -hmm. goes through some of the same processes, some of the same Steps, mm -hmm. you know. In the beginning, there's there's always just a few, a few pioneers who people say are crazy for planting grapes because you can never grow grapes in Oregon. Right. Why would you leave California and come up to Oregon? It's too cold. Um, why would you plant Pinot Noir in Oregon? Why would you plant Tempranillo in Southern Oregon? Mm -hmm. There, there, are, there's always a few renegades and you know pioneers. Um, and then the idea catches on, mm -hmm. and people see, oh, so and so is actually doing pretty, pretty well, or we can grow grapes here. The possibilities there, so more people start coming on. Um, it takes a bit of time to figure out in a region what grows well. Mm -hmm. In Europe, it took hundreds and hundreds of years, multiple, multiple, multiple generations to, to figure out, well, you know what, Burgundy's pretty good for Chardonnay and Pinot, Bordeaux, Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, the Rhone Syrah, you know, all those sorts of 
things. The advantage we have today is the research that's been available to us. That said, it still takes time. Um, I'm part of a second generation of winemakers here, and can I say that we know exactly what's the what's the best thing here? No, I wouldn't place that bet yet. Mm -hmm. You know, but we, as opposed to having maybe 20 different possibilities, I think we've honed in on probably 10. And I see, I've seen that happen in other regions as well. I mean, every region goes through the process of, it's, it's really just a process of elimination. Mm -hmm. And as a wine region begins to figure out what they're, what they can be known for, well then the critics start paying attention, you know, and when it's after the critics do, the public does, or sometimes it's just the opposite, it's the, the, the public that first notices and the critics notice the public noticing and think, oh, wait a minute, I want to get in on this also. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there's that part of it, you know, and the other part of it is qualitatively, you know, and I've seen a huge change in just the quality of the wines coming out of the Southern Oregon region. Um, recently, just this last week, we went through all of our library stock, mm -hmm. so it was 25 years worth of wine. There were 138 different wines, all going back to 1988, and we tasted through every single one of them. That must have been a rough job. It, it took four <laughs> days um, and a uh, fair few headaches, but it was uh, it was real interesting to go back and taste, you know, cab all the way back to 1988. One of the things that we noticed is when we started looking at the alcohols, just uh, just just at the alcohols, which is a bur you know which is going to be a gauge of pretty much where the sugars were when you harvested <laughs> in the late 80s, early 90s, we were seeing alcohols of 12, 12.1, 12.2, 12.3, and all in that range. About 1995, 98, in that range, they crept up to about 13. Oh. By the 2000s, we were into 138, 14, 142, 14 of five. Okay. Um, the reason for that is the there were two things, um, actually three things. One, we were we were figuring out how to grow grapes better. There were certain vineyard techniques that people were finally being exposed to. These were tech, techniques that had already happened and had and, and that were happening in other areas. That knowledge just hadn't quite gotten up here yet. Mm -hmm. um, we started learning how to to produce wine better. You know, um, we weren't picking grapes at 21, or we weren't picking cab at 22 bricks. You know, we were waiting to where the fruit got riper. Mm -hmm. um, the public taste, I think, also changed. There was more of a more. There was a greater reception for wines that were maybe a little bit juicier, a little bit fruitier, a little bit more substance to them. Um, and then the seasons of them, you know, the seasons themselves always change, but mm -hmm. um, yet that was interesting to see how the wine 
making here has evolved over the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. Not all the wines were very good, but you know, that's how it, that's how it is. Mm -hmm. One of our focuses for this project has been not only the sort of the origins of Southern Oregon wine industry, but what is it currently known for, or where do we think that it's going? Mm -hmm. um, for example, Willamette Valley, it's land of Pinot Noir. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it for Umpqua Valley and Rogue Valley? Right. You know, what is its identity? It's a great question, and and I think um, I think that. I don't like the word struggle, but I think that we're still searching for the identity here. Mm -hmm. um, one identity that's easy is that we can produce a lot of things. Mm -hmm. you know, everything from Stavagnon Blanc to Stinfandel, mm -hmm. uh, Dolcetto, uh, Marsan, Chardonnay, all these things can be grown in Southern Oregon. Um, and I think that anytime you have a, a larger region such as Oregon that has been known for primarily one or two varietals, Pinot Noir, maybe Pinot Gris slash Chardonnay, when you come sort of on the heels of that kind of um, that kind of popularity, it's you're sort of operating in a bit of uh, the marketing shadow right. of that and that that can be challenging for a region. Um, so I think Southern Oregon is, is, is uh, I, think it, I think it has an identity, um, but I think it has several. You know, the types and the character of wine that you see um, being produced out of the Umpqua is very different, in a sense, than the wines being produced in the Applegate. That's also different from the, right, the, the wines being produced in the Upper Rogue or our own little Bear Creek area. So to, to, to ask, well, what's the identity of Southern Oregon? It's, it's, a, big, it's a big question, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, that's something that will, that, that the individual regions within Southern Oregon are going to figure out mm -hmm. as they continue to evolve. From your perspective, of course, as the son of John, it, do you have any sort of perspective on what he was like within the wine industry, or, or could you say a few words about him? Um, you know, my dad is definitely a renaissance man, and uh, he likes to cut his own path, mm -hmm. always has. Um, so looking back on it with the perspective I have now, it doesn't surprise me that he did what he did. Um, and that's something about him I really respect. Um, and as a founder, really, of the industry, or one of the founders in this area, um, you know, I feel very fortunate to have had, to have had sort of a sideline chair to everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, uh, seeing his, uh, his frustrations, his joys, his successes, his mm -hmm failures. Um, and those are all sorts of things that, that will occur to you when you're the first person to do something. You know, um, I remember it was a real honor for him to be asked to be one of the first board members to the new Oregon Wine Board mm -hmm. when it changed from the Wine Advisory Board to the Oregon OWB. And um, you know, he was sitting right there on the board with people like David 
Edelheim and mm-hmm. other organ pioneers. And I know that really meant a lot to him. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that he's ever really thought of himself, himself as being any sort of father of the organ wine industry, mm-hmm. but he is, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I think that he's, he's had a huge influence on it, both directly and indirectly, through having influence on others. Um, so even though he's not as involved as he used to be, um, he said to me on quite a few occasions, if I was only 20 years younger, right. you know, if I was only 30 years younger. Um, but uh, no, I rely on him for his perspective and his uh, advice. Mm-hmm. So he was on the board, of course, for yes. Oregon Mind Board. Yep. Were there other organizations or efforts that he was a part of or that you're now a part of? Well, the, you know, one organization that, um, that he was uh, a big part of getting going was the Southern Oregon Winery Association. Mm-hmm. Um, and the current... Uh, Southern Oregon Winery Association. This is sort of like the second generation of it. Um, the first time the Southern Oregon Winery Association was put together was probably about 1992 or 93, um, and it was uh, it was ourselves. It was Ashton Vineyards. It was Forest Valley View, Bridgeview. Alpine vineyards that they're not even around anymore, and maybe one other. So there's only seven of them, and that organization was only together long enough to put out a brochure, and that was it. And the second generation of that uh, Southern Point Association started about uh, 2000. Anyway, he was a real big part of that, and uh, because at that time we realized that Southern Oregon was growing, um, and there were a, there was enough of us that we really needed to organize Mm -hmm. in part for promotional value and also just uh, it it was time and that's one of those steps that in a region you'll see you know you see all these independent producers doing their own thing and at some point in time they all realize hey you know what we're gonna actually do better if we start working together you know when you have the full philosophy of a rising tide floats all boats. Mm-hmm. And that's a real important thing to get when you're a growing region. Mm-hmm. Because if we're all doing things separately, that's fine and everything, but we're going to be much more, it's going to be much better for the region if we unite. And that's what the Southern Oregon Point Association was about. Mm-hmm. Um, I was president of it for three years. Okay. And it was, it was I really enjoyed it because um, the, I mean, I think our membership doubled within those three years. Okay. Um, and it's almost doubled since, I think. I mean, it's a really great organization. And what's, what's also happening, again, this is a, one of those processes that happens is within the Southern Oregon Winery Association, you now have four other winery associations, the Umqua, Applegate, Upper Rogue, Beard Creek. Right. And that's just, that's part of what I've, I've seen this happen in Australia, different regions, in Barossa, Margaret 
River, Kunwara in you know New Zealand, Marlborough, Central Otago, all these, you know, that's just what happens. It's a good sign. Good, and it's so fascinating to hear your perspective on the international scale of organs evolution and in the forming of these groups and now subgroups is mm -hmm. right in line with what's happening elsewhere around the world. It is. It is. I don't. I think that. Uh, I mean, it's been said countless times. History repeats itself, and that's what it does. I mean, it's just. You know, that's just there. There's um, as something develops. There's a sort of a. There are different paths than it can that it, that it can take to develop. Mm -hmm. There's always a one that's the best and the smartest, and generally that's what you hope for and you hope that if you have the right group of people together with a common philosophy shared goals that you can you know that's the direction you're gonna head and I feel like that's what's happening here I mean I'm really excited to see what will happen in the next 25 years because um, it will change a lot right do you have any vision of that or, or any hopes for what you would like to see in the next 20 to 25 years I think that um, in general, I would like the um, I would like us to continue to improve on the quality of wine. I think specifically, I mean, for Oregon in general, my my hope is that Oregon becomes um, a global player. Um, I think that's going to be really, really important. Um, in the five years that I've been working in New Zealand, um, seeing New Zealand really grow even further into Asia, um, it's, it's a huge market. I can't stress enough how important Asia is for the New Zealand and the Australian wine industry. I really feel that it's important for the Oregon wine industry also, it's a massive market. Um, so I think for Oregon, I want to see it become more of an international uh, brand. Mm -hmm. um, for Southern Oregon, I want to see the continuation of the improvement of quality. I'd like us to hone in on what's what's the what is the what's the land calling us to do you know I mean what should we be making just Sauvignon Blanc not that I think we should but you know just what is it sh that we that that uh, we should be doing mm -hmm. um, I don't know just want to see it grow pr productively and I'd like to still be having a good time in 20 years right. at it so no I think that um, um, I think that the potential is there for Oregon um, to do a lot, but I think that it's really um, got to look outside the, uh, it's got to get into the international com community, and it can. What would that take? I, I mean, just more marketing or? Well, yeah, it takes, well, it takes, um, uh, sometimes it just takes the right intro. You know, the the right handshake with the right person at the right time, you know. Um, I think there's a lot going on in Oregon right now that, that is focusing on opening those markets. Um, was that a meeting recently where that was one of the, the topics? 
But if I knew exactly what Oregon had to do, I could quit this job here and just <laughs> consult, right? But um, no, I think that it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a challenge for Oregon, but it certainly isn't one that's, that we can't obtain, that, that we can't get to. But I couldn't tell you what the four-step process is. Right. But we do have to, I mean, we do have to produce quality wine. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to do it affordably. And we have to, um, we have to have the channels. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to have your, your channels set up. If you can't get the, the product to the people, then there's no point in having people. Right. From your perspective, Focusing back on, you know, we're obviously very interested in the history of the orange wine industry. What are some of the elements that we should make sure we're capturing or that the industry keeps in mind as you move forward? Well, I, you know, I think when you're talking about history, part of the charm of Oregon is, is, is its history and how it got started and all the eccentric characters and, and all the crazy stories and, and I mean, or it's just, um, I don't know, I think, um, I, th I think it's a daunting task, actually, to mm -hmm. try and you know capture the essence of the Oregon wine story, because mm -hmm. there's tens of thousands of stories, and they're all different, and they're all in, in, important. Mm -hmm. um, so, what should you capture? It's a good question. I have to think about that. I think probably what you're doing. You know, and just sitting down talking with with people. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, keep me posted if you okay. think of the magic sure. answer. Yeah, yeah. Chris, we love to know. Mm -hmm. And then we'll pay you a consulting fee. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was my formal set of questions okay. for you. Is there anything that I didn't cover or ask that I should have? Um, I can't think of anything offhand. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's. It, I mean, for me, it, it's sort of interesting because we're the industry here in this region is about 25 years old, 25, 30 years old. It's. It isn't as old as, as up in the Willamette, but to me, there's something about a 25-year period. You know, it's a quarter of a century, and that's where we are. Mm -hmm. And so, on one level, I think it's very sig significant. Like, wow, we've got 25 years behind us. On another level, I say, wow, just 25 years? Right. And you know, we're still very young. Right. Um, and one of the things that I like about the industry is the type of people it, seems, it generally uh, attracts. And it generally attracts people who are they're in it because they enjoy it. They didn't, you know, they didn't get into this industry because they hate it. Because mm. I'm not sure anybody would work this hard at something that they hate unless they got paid really well. Uh, but it's definitely a labor of love. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that there's a certain character, a certain type of, of person that will do that. Um, generally, people in the industry enjoy having fun. They, you know, you always know it's gonna be a good party if you've got a bunch of, you know, one industry folks there. Right. Um, so now I'm looking forward to seeing what happens here over the next 10, 20 years. I think that it's going to change a lot. I think you're going to see bigger producers. And that's one thing that I think you will see, like up in the wool, 
Lamin, you 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 have those 20, 30, 50,000 case operations. Um, you don't really have those here, mm. but you're going to. And that again is one of the that's one of the stages of the right. of the development. Mm -hmm. um, there won't be a lot. There's there's no corporate owned wineries really in this area. That'll happen. You know, in 20 years, you'll probably have smaller wineries being purchased by other bigger ones. Kind of like what you see happening every week, it seems, in uh, Calif California. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We just have to sit back and watch. Right. Well, thank you so much for sure. your time, Eric. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.